Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. We are living up to our name today. You know there's shows you watch, science shows about the universe, outer space. They always have the same cast of characters. Star Trek? You, no, no, no. Like the real, real science. Oh, okay. They always have the same cast of characters telling you about the crazy stuff that's going on and explaining it to you. We have that guy on the show today. You will recognize him. You will know who we're talking about. His name is Dr. Michio Kaku. And he is a theoretical physicist in about everything else. It, it's one of those guys where the bios are so long, I don't know how much we want to go through because you've seen him. But, he, you know, he went to Harvard, PhD from Berkeley. He is a visitor and member at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton in New York. He currently holds the Henry Samat Chair and Professorship in Theoretical Physics at the City College of New York. And he has a billion articles published and is all over TV and has a radio show and is a genius. Yeah, just to name a few, a couple BBC series, Time, Visions of the Future. He was on History Channel's The Universe and writes for Cosmos Magazine. So it, you know who all we're talking about. So anyways, today we are talking to him. Most recently, he wrote a book called The Future of the Mind, The Scientific Quest to Understand, Enhance, and Empower the Mind. Talk about all types of crazy stuff. Did you know we can take a picture of a dream? like an, So 
you dream about somebody stabbing yourself, we can take a picture of that now. If you were in an MRI machine with all the science, we are talking about implanting memories for people with Alzheimer's, kind of like a brain reboot almost, although he explains it a lot better. I just want to let everybody dive in, so we're not going to talk about that anymore. Smartpeoplepodcast.com is where we are. If you want to read some other stuff that I write on the side, chrisstemp.com. I've been putting out some articles there that, John, you think they're decent, right? They're pretty good. I Come on. They're, they're, good. They're, they're good. He loves they're good. them. And use our Amazon banner as always. John is tweeting like crazy at smartpeoplepod. We'd love for you guys to join. Join in the conversation. And here is Dr. Kaku. Dr. Kaku, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And as I was mentioning before we got started, I've seen you all over TV on some of the coolest shows, just explaining the most insane, mind-blowing phenomenons in our universe. And I, I just wanted to first start off to, to let our listeners know, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you got started in all this, when you realized your passions and, and where they arose from. Well, it all started when I was eight years old, and I'll never forget my teacher announcing that a great scientist had just died. It was in all the papers. Uh, I still remember the picture they flashed. It made the front page of all the newspapers. They showed a picture of his desk with the unfinished manuscript of his greatest work. And for me, this was greater than any murder mystery. I had to know what was in that book. What could be so complicated that the smartest man of our time could not finish it? Later, I found out that man was Albert Einstein, and that book that he could not finish was the unified field theory, the theory of everything. So I said to myself, well, why not finish it? This is, this is great. This is like an adventure story. I wanted to help finish that book. Well, today, we actually think we have the theory. The theory is called string theory. And I'm the, actually the co-founder of string field theory, one of the main branches of string theory. And uh, we're beginning to test aspects of it with the Large Hadron Collider now. And so this is sort of like a dream come true. It's really incredible. At the time, did you understand all that had happened with Einstein, like all that he brought to the field? No. All I knew was that he couldn't finish this theory. Uh -huh. It was to be the crowning achievement of 2,000 years of investigation into the nature of matter and energy and space and time. And I thought this was really neat. This is glorious. I mean, think about that. An equation, one inch long, that will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. Mm. I mean, this was for me. I said to myself, this is where I'm going to be devoting a good chunk of my life trying to complete that book. And so what were the steps you took? How did you kind of move forward from there? I'd just really like to look, because that's, a, that's an enormous undertaking. I mean, I, I can't even understand string theory. I, I will ask you about that going forward. But how did you work towards that goal? Well, I decided that I had to do some science fair projects to learn and cut my teeth, right? So I, um, in high school, I built an atom smasher. I went to my mom and I said, Mom, can I have permission to build a 2.3 million electron volt betatron electron accelerator in the garage? And she said, sure, why not? So I got 400 pounds of transformer steel from Westinghouse, 22, 22 miles of copper wire from Varian Associates, and I built a 6-kilowatt, 2.3 million electron volt atom smasher in the garage. Um, it consumed all the power in the garage, 
And as soon as I turned it on, I heard this pop, pop, pop sound as I blew out all the all the fuses <laughs> in the house. And my poor mom, she'd come home from a hard day's work. All the lights would flicker and die. And then she would say, how come I don't have a son who can play baseball? Why can't he play basketball? And for God's sake, why can't he find a nice Japanese girlfriend? I mean, why does he have to build these machines in the garage? Well, because I built these machines in the garage, I won the attention of an atomic scientist that I met at the National Science Fair in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he offered to give me a scholarship to Harvard. That was Edward Teller, father of the hydrogen bomb, who sort of became my mentor when I was uh, in high school and college. How did you even know what an atom smasher was? I mean, this is before YouTube. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, you know, when I, was in, um, when I was very young, Sputnik went up, and it was the, the Sputnik shock where everyone was saying, the Russians are going to be ahead of us. Why can't Johnny compete with Ivan? And so I still remember Life magazine uh, had a front-page article, and it said, Ivan can read, but Johnny cannot. <laughs> and that sort of summed it up. The Russians are ahead of us, and it was our patriotic duty, our patriotic duty to become a physicist and a mathematician and a scientist and, and uh, propel the space program. And so a lot of us, a lot of us kids, uh, began to read science fiction. We began to read about all the fantastic things that we knew were out there. But then I found, some, found out something, and that is basically there was nothing, nothing in the library for a young, bright kid who wanted to learn about antimatter and the fourth dimension and space exploration. And so I said to myself, when I grow up and I become a theoretical physicist, um, I want to at least engage the public to talk to young people who are just as frustrated as I was when I was a kid going to the library and finding out that there was nothing, absolutely nothing about the unified field theory. One of the things you talked about real quick was Edward Teller and kind of being a mentor of yours, and he created the hydrogen bomb. I'm sure you've gotten questions like this or thought about this. Where do you see the intersection between kind of science and also destruction or danger? So, you know, using it to build, either, whether it be the hydrogen bomb, obviously the nuclear weapons. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I was very mindful of the impact of technology on society because at that time the Vietnam War was raging, mm -hmm. and I actually went into the military. Oh, wow. And I thought maybe I would go into Signal Corps or something like that. Nope. The U.S. Army wanted infantry. They wanted cannon fodder. They wanted bodies. They didn't want PhDs doing signal core and radar and stuff like that. They just needed bodies on the ground. And so at that point, I had to really confront the fact that, yes, technology can be used for mass destruction or technology can be used to liberate people. I mean, science is a sword, a double-edged sword. One side can cut against poverty, ignorance, disease, but the other side can cut against people. And the main thing is that we have to seize control of this sword. The people, the will of the people, the good of the people have to be in charge of wielding this enormous power. Science is the engine of prosperity. Everything we see around us, all the prosperity, the goods, the services we see are a bright product of science. But of course, science also can destroy millions of people if science is not uh, tamed by democracy. Mm. And that's why I believe that the Internet, for example, 
will be that democratic force that makes sure that science is used for the benefit of the people rather than for destruction. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I can imagine even you looking on the Internet, typing in the word string theory, and I can't even imagine but how many Google hits you'll get, as opposed to just, you know, a couple decades ago when you first started out, your frustration with the lack of information. That transformation must have been amazing. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was like a lot of kids. I used to do lots of experiments and dream and read about science fiction. And I was also interested in the mind, uh, like telepathy and telekinesis. I used to do a lot of experiments as a kid trying to read other people's minds. (laughs) Well, after many, many hours of frustration, I finally concluded that maybe, just maybe, true telepaths walk the surface of the earth. But I wasn't one of them. (laughs) But now, because we have advanced physics, uh, we can actually peer right into the mind. We can actually see thoughts ricocheting like a ping pong ball inside the living brain. And that's incredible. Again, it's like a dream come true. Being able to actually use telepathy to extend the power of the mind, have the mind control computers, move objects with the mind as a consequence, upload memories, record memories, and even photograph a dream. This was considered impossible just a few years ago, and hey, we can do it now. Okay, so that's uh, it's time to dive into the real good stuff. The first thing and is telekinesis, and I can't believe I'm going to admit this on the podcast. I hope I'm not the only one. But I have, laying on the couch, tried to move the remote without getting up. Okay, I've, I've literally... <laughs> thought about it you know too much star wars (laughs) um are what are your thoughts i mean really and i know oftentimes people say that you're a little too sci-fi or whatever what is science telling us or telling you about that potential well when i talk about science fiction i make sure that all the prototypes are grounded in reality i have to see them i have to touch them i have the advantage of being able to work with bbc television discovery channel and bring a film crew into the laboratory to photograph the prototypes. So if people say, oh, come on, come on, give me a break, that's not possible, I show them the prototypes. I can show them some of the first pictures of a dream ever taken. I can show pictures of thoughts as they go ricocheting across the brain. And, for example, telekinesis, right, you mentioned, Mm -hmm. the ability to move objects with the mind. That is not possible with the unaided brain. The brain is a milliwatt transmitter. It, it produces a bunch of gibberish in radio, and it's useless for telepathy and telekinesis. But now we have physics, which can peer into your thoughts, and computers, which can decipher these thoughts. And so we can now hook the, the mind to a computer and have the computer type, um, operate household appliances, um, being able to basically surf the web and, and read email, write email, just by thinking about it. And so in the future, when we walk into a room, we may mentally turn on the lights, turn on the thermostat, mentally turn on the computer, uh, surf the web, type emails just by thinking about it rather than touching our screens. And our children will wonder, Mommy, Daddy, how could you possibly live in a world where you had to touch a screen, Mm. where you actually had to move your fingers to type? How could you live like that? And I am not anywhere near an expert. I'm not even a novice. I don't know what I am, but that doesn't seem outrageous to me. I actually really do imagine that happening at some point. What What is your estimation on the time for that type of technology? Oh, well, we can actually do it now. 
the military, for example, uh, has already uh, dumped tens of millions of dollars into something called revolutionary prosthetics uh, based at mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins University and many other universities. We can connect the brain of a, a, a veteran from Iraq or Afghanistan who has an injured spinal cord or lost an arm or a leg, connect the brain directly to a computer, which then controls an exoskeleton something right out of Iron Man comics. Wow. These mechanical arms are so sensitive, you can pick up an egg, uh, you can shake hands, you can fist bomb, high five hmm. with these mechanical arms, and it's done totally by thinking. And Stephen Hawking, my colleague, who has now lost control of his fingers, we've now connected him mentally to a laptop computer. Next time you see him on TV, look at his right glass. There is a chip in his right glass, which is connected to a laptop computer. So by thinking, he can basically control a laptop computer. And in Japan, they actually have workers that mentally control a robot. Uh, These are called surrogates or avatars. These are robots that do not have artificial intelligence, but they're controlled by a worker with a helmet. The helmet then decodes the brain waves, sends out messages to the robot, and the robot begins to move. Now, this could be the future of the space program. Hmm. The space program is very expensive because life support systems are extremely costly. Hmm. And, of course, radiation, weightlessness pose real dangers to astronauts. Why not send a robot to outer space, guided mentally by an astronaut sitting in his hot tub in his living room? (laughs) That could be the future of the space program. You have to think about that other side of the sword there, too, because that could also be the future of warfare. Oh, sure. I mean, but however, let's be very clear about this. The military has tried to create Iron Man the warrior. Yes. But there is a bottleneck, a very big bottleneck. Why don't we have flying cars? Why don't we have jetpacks? Why don't we have ray guns? Why don't we have Iron Man suits? And the reason is no portable power pack. Mm. We have no portable way of harnessing that amount of energy for a portable ray gun, a jetpack, a flying car, or an Iron Man suit. However, we can create the ray gun. We can create the Iron Man suit. You just have to have a cable, a cable connecting <laughs> you to a nuclear power plant. That's the only problem. Yeah, and I, I think to the Navy's railgun experiment where they're on this huge battleship, but when they fire the railgun, it shuts down the ship for a certain amount of time because of the amount of power that it used. Right. So everyone forgets the fact. People yeah. say, where's my jetpack? Well, duh. The problem is we have no concentrated portable um, uh, source of energy uh, that you can, you can bring to the battlefield and so on and so forth. So the military is basically looking at this as a communication device. That is, you mentally can communicate with your soldiers on the battlefield using telepathy rather than using radios and stuff because there's too much noise on the battlefield and also to create a humanitarian mission to help the veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. But visions of Iron Man warriors uh, have this bottleneck, and that is we simply don't have a portable battery. I think the funniest part is, a couple weeks ago, President Obama joked around about building the Iron Man suit, and they've kind of put it out there saying, we want to build that suit. And 20 years ago, five years ago, we would have laughed at that, thinking that it was impossible, that type of thing. I just love where we are now with science and technology, where these things that were considered fantasy or sci-fi really are in the realm of possibility. 
Right. And if you watch, for example, the movie The Matrix, uh, you say to yourself, come on, I mean, uh, uploading memories into the mind, learning karate by pressing a button. Well, believe it or not, uh, we have active groups at Wake Forest University, Berkeley, uh, Brown University that are doing just that. At Wake Forest University last year, they recorded the first uh, memory and they reinserted the memory back into an animal and the animal remembered. Wow. This is history making. At Wake Forest University, they took a mouse, and the hippocampus is a small organ that processes memories. They tape-recorded a memory of a mouse drinking water. Then the mouse forgot the task over time. Then they reinserted the memory back into the mouse, and bingo, the mouse remembered immediately. Next will be primates. We're going to record memories of primates, for example, eating a banana or something and then record it, and then shoot the memory back into the monkey. And the short-term goal is to create a brain pacemaker for Alzheimer's patients. That's why millions of dollars are being spent into this, because we know that there are going to be millions of people suffering from Alzheimer's, and why not create a brain pacemaker? You push the button, and you reinsert the memories into the hippocampus, so that the person knows who they are, who their children are, where they live, where they left the keys. And that could prevent a, a social catastrophe as we have millions of Alzheimer's patients wandering around, getting lost, not knowing who they are, creating a huge problem for their families. And then beyond that, who knows, maybe we'll be able to upload the vacation that we never had. Is that the equivalent of backing up your computer on an external hard drive? Like you're backing up your memories, your brain fails, and you just go, boop, reload, and you, you reload it? Is that it's what would even more than It's even more than that. Uh, last year, President Barack Obama announced a brain initiative. Uh, the European Union and the U.S. will dump a billion dollars into creating Brain 2.0, a disk which is a copy of all the neural pathways of the human brain. In other words, very soon we will have a disk called the genome and another disk called the connectome, and both of them together contain all the information necessary to create a carbon copy of you. Now, in some sense, this is a form of immortality. Now, again, the short-term goal is, said President Barack Obama, we want to cure mental illness. We think that mental illness, many of them are caused by miswiring of the brain, but we're clueless as to how the brain is wired up. But long-term, if you have the connectome and the genome, you basically have you 2.0. And when you die, in some sense, all the information necessary to bring you back to life is still there. So in some sense, you live forever. I can't, I, it almost hurts my brain thinking about it. So I want to talk about the brain and the mind. I know your most recent book, which is fantastic. It's all over the top of the charts. The Future of the Mind, The Scientific Quest to Understand, Enhance, and Empower the Mind. Let's start off with your explanation of how the MRI was a key in understanding the brain. Can you explain that to us? Yeah. Until about 10 years ago, we hardly knew anything about the living, thinking brain. We basically had strokes, autopsies, and people damaged in war. That's how we experimented with the body. But then with the MRI, we can actually detect oxygen in blood flow. MRI machines are very good at detecting the oxygen molecule inside hemoglobin, which in turn is part of the blood flows of the brain. And we think that by analyzing the blood flows of the brain, you can thereby calculate the electrical activity of the brain as well. And then we can begin to uh, analyze all these old wives' tale about the brain. Freudian psychology, for example. 
Freudian psychology is slowly coming back because we can actually see how the id and the superego and the unconscious mind interact with each other. And so we've learned more in the last 10 years about the brain than in all of human history combined. All the hearsay, the mysticism, the legends are now being tested or thrown out the window because we can actually see the living brain at work. And at Berkeley, you can take these MRI scans and actually from them, put them in a computer and create a picture, a picture of what you are thinking about. So in my slideshow, for example, I show a picture of Steve Martin, the actor, and then a picture created out of the brain itself looking at a picture of Steve Martin. And then if you fall asleep in the MRI machine, the MRI machine keeps on going, and it prints out a picture of your dream. Okay, so a picture of your dream as in a picture that I could see and recognize, or is it a That's picture? That's right. We're wow. talking about the fact that in the future you may wake up, push the button, and see a video of the dream you had the previous night. That is outrageous. Outrageous, right? <laughs> and, but and, hey, this is physics. And terrifying. This is the power of physics. Once we understand the blood flow of the brain and computers, which can then take this blood flow, convert it to 30,000 dots, analyze these 30,000 dots, and create a picture. Is there any analogy with a pixel, like those dots being a pixel on a TV, or is that not uh, at all? Yes, that's right. Uh, if the brain has, for example, about, about the 300 regions of the brain, um, all of which can be analyzed instantly by, by an MRI scan. Within each region, there are thousands of dots representing uh, blood flow, and a computer then takes this mass of data. It looks like a Christmas tree, in fact, all the lights of a Christmas tree. It takes this mass of data, and the software then reconstructs a picture of what you are looking at. So if you're looking at an elephant, a person, uh, the picture is crude. We're only talking about 30,000 dots. A, a typical picture may have hundreds of thousands to millions of pixels. Mm -hmm. And so it is grainy. But in fact, on the Internet, you can actually see these pictures. Um, and we're talking, again, science. Uh, I'm not a science fiction writer. I'm a physicist. And we're talking about real physics done in the laboratory. And I imagine you run into it a lot. You're trying to explain it and people just don't quite get it. So you're and you do a great job in the book of kind of, you know, breaking it down for people that aren't theoretical physicists all over TV and understand that stuff. So, I, I mean, I love what you've done for the field. And that's why I wanted to have you on. It's so it's I don't know. It's the future, I guess. Well, a lot of people are interested in it. Uh, the book hit number one, number one on the New York Times bestseller list, the yeah. Amazon, the Barnes & Noble list. A lot of people are curious about what sits on their shoulder. Yep. Uh, it only, you know, your brain only consumes 20 watts of power. Uh, a dim wow. bulb uh, consumes more energy than your brain, and yet your brain is the most complex object in the known universe. Wow. We know of nothing more complicated than what sits on your shoulder. Well, actually, that reminded me of a question I had for you was, is there any truth behind this this myth, or, well, I don't want to call it a myth, this thing we've heard forever that we only use a very small percentage of our brain? Is there a portion that we can engage and become superhuman? Uh, well, the short answer is no. However, uh, if you brain scan the brain, you realize that the conscious brain is only a tiny, tiny fraction of the entire unconscious brain. Uh, think of a corporation. In a corporation, the CEO does not have to know everything that's happening in the mailroom. The CEO only deals with the big picture. So most of a corporation's thinking is actually unconscious. Same thing with the brain. Most of the activity of the brain is unconscious. 
However, because of this, we could then begin to analyze how the brain might be miswired or how the brain may be enhanced. For example, some people who have injury to the left temporal lobe become super mathematical geniuses. One boy had a bullet that went through the left temporal lobe. Another man bashed his head on the swimming pool uh, diving in. Both of them began to emerge as super mathematical geniuses afterwards. Now, after this interview, do not go home and pick up a hammer and hit yourself on the left temporal lobe, hoping to become a genius. It doesn't work that way. But we have a theory now as to how it happens. Photographic memory, we now believe, is because the brain has, in some sense, forgot how to erase a memory. We used to think that the brain records, and then the brain naturally lets the memory decay with time. All textbooks say that. Memory just degrade with time. Many scientists don't believe that anymore. They believe that the erasing process is a very complicated biochemical mechanism. In these people who have photographic memory, the erase mechanism is broken. They have forgotten how to forget. They record memories just like we do. But unlike our brain, their brain does not erase these memories. So we too have that same capability. Our brain is also capable of super mathematical and artistic feats. Then wouldn't we want to go in and just disable that feature in all people? I mean, I would like to have that happen. You know, <laughs> I, I'd like to have that photographic memory. Well, the reason I'm asking is, is it a, a bad thing that we erase memories? Well, actually, when you interview these people who have photographic memory, uh, many of them say that they wish they didn't have it. Hmm. Uh, because it, most of it is, all of it is useless memory. Uh, one woman in Los Angeles, for example, says that she sees sort of like a split vision. One vision is what she sees right now. The other vision is a day 30 years ago, on May 2nd, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, that she is reliving second by second. And it's useless information. So I think evolution gave us the ability to erase memories as well as record memories and to keep the ones that are important because otherwise we'd be flooded with all this extraneous information. Now, it'd be great if we could do it selectively. Right. If just before an exam or just before some big event, we could selectively memorize everything, that would be great. But unfortunately, we don't know how that works yet. That was really a fantastic answer. I, I love that explanation because you're right. It's I can realize it now. I don't want to know everything. I don't really want to know most of the things that have happened. And so what I was going to say to you was, oh, I wish there was a way our brain remembered the important things. And I'd imagine your response would be, it does. I mean, there are a lot of things you can remember. Uh, that's right. And if you take a look at Asperger's syndrome, we're beginning to realize the basis of what is called genius. Uh, the greatest scientist who ever lived, according to Albert Einstein, was Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton was a very strange person historically. Didn't have any friends, no girlfriends, no close friends at all. Didn't know how to make small talk. You wouldn't want to invite him to dinner. And if you want to see someone with Asperger's syndrome, just watch the Big Bang Theory on CBS television. <laughs> I think they all have Asperger's there. Yeah. <laughs> but many Nobel Prize winners, uh, many winners of the Fields Medal in mathematics, uh, had Asperger's syndrome. And we're now beginning to slowly brain scan these people to understand how that happens as well. Huh. I interviewed one person with, As with Asperger's, uh, Daniel Hammett, and uh, he memorized pi to 15,000 decimal places. He has the world's record. Now, I asked him, how do you memorize anything to 15,000 decimal places? It took him roughly eight hours to recite all the digits. 
And he said that, well, he associates a color with every digit. And I said, well, that's nice. How do you remember 15,000 colors? (laughs) And at that point, he says, I don't know. (laughs) However, like I said, I think we're beginning to understand that forgetting is a very complicated process. It's just not entropy and the wearing down of a memory. Forgetting is very complicated. And in these people... They have forgotten how to forget. From your wow. you know, research in the lab and the things you've done regarding the brain, I'm very interested in sleep. So I'm wondering if you've seen anything specific, the purpose of sleep. Is it restoration? Is it this, I've heard the memory theory. So it's you know, putting those in well, different these places. these are all theories. However, um, I had a chance to interview some of the world's leading experts on dreams at Harvard. And their basic attitude is when you brain scan <clears throat> the brain when it rests and then goes into sleep, First of all, your prefrontal cortex that is right behind your forehead, it shuts off, meaning that um, logic goes out the window. And then your uh, orbital frontal cortex right behind your eyeballs, they are shut off. That's your fact checker. So the fact checker is shut off, and that's why dreams become uh, fantastical. But then your amygdala, your amygdala lights up very brightly. Your amygdala governs your emotions, especially Uh, fear. And that's why we mainly have nightmares and unpleasant memories rather than pleasant memories. And if you think about it, if you have a pleasant memory, you already have, you know, understand it. You've assimilated that information, right? But unpleasant memories, you haven't really adjusted to them yet. You haven't really digested them yet. So in some sense, one theory says that the purpose of dreams is to deliberately deliberately excite the amygdala, which has unpleasant memories in it, so you can work your way through it like a file cabinet, sort of like, you know, come to grips and and rationalize and understand the implications of an unpleasant memory. And so we see that happening as well. And then out-of-body experiences we can understand and near-death experiences we can also understand. If you take an electrode and you stimulate the area between two lobes, Uh, One, for example, like the visual cortex and the motor cortex, the boundary between them. The brain gets confused, and that gives you out-of-body experiences. Your body begins to float. And we can do that like a light switch. Simply by turning on a light switch, we can excite that part of the boundary of the brain, and boom, (laughs) you are levitating. You turn it off, and you're back on the ground again. And then near-death experiences can also be explained. Um, The Air Force, for example, needed to understand how pilots black out on on a steep curve. So they put pilots in an ultra-centrifuge, and just before the pilots black out, blood drains from the outside of their eye. The peripheral vision starts to get black because blood is draining from the outside of the eye. And that's why you see a tunnel. You see a tunnel with a light at the end, And that explains why near-death experiences are like that. Mm. Basically, it's oxygen deprivation caused by whatever is causing the um, near-death experience that causes our field of vision to narrow, giving us the illusion that there's heaven at the end of the earthly tunnel. Does this help explain why so many people also have similar alien abduction memories? Well, possibly. It turns out that when you dream, you are paralyzed. Because if you are not paralyzed and you act out your dreams, there could be a lot of chaos. <laughs> but about, about 10% of the human population, when they wake up in the morning, they are still paralyzed. Even though most of us are not paralyzed when we wake up, about 10% of us, when we wake up, are still paralyzed. 
Now, there are many paintings of this, depicting this, during the Victorian era. Many women had this, and there are pictures of gremlins, ugly gremlins sitting on these women's chests, staring down on them as they wake up in the morning. In fact, you can Google them. I did that the other day and saw a bunch of these Victorian pictures. Now, some people think that that's maybe alien abduction, hmm. because when you wake up, you are paralyzed. You are fearful. You have this image of a, of a gremlin sitting on top of your chest. It is rather a fearful memory. And under hypnosis, you can evoke that feeling. So some people think that, well, who knows? Maybe that's the origin of alien abduction. And again, about 10% of us have this. When I ask my class, by the way, how many people have this problem of being paralyzed in the morning, about 10% raised their hand. I've actually had it happen to myself once, and I had to look it up because I guess it's sleep paralysis or, or whatever right. it's called. But I could almost see myself in the bed. It was a really bizarre feeling, and it was really scary because I knew I was awake, and I thought I was paralyzed. I was like, great, my life just changed. You were abducted. <laughs> And then I, I know we got to let you go. I had one question for you that has kind of uh, bothered me for a long time. And it's the more I feel we learn about the brain, the more I learn specifically just by interviewing people, the more it breaks down into it is just a series of chemicals and electronic signals going back and forth. That's all it is. Okay. Nothing special. And so what that makes me believe is we could do something like the Matrix where we just plug people up, we give them an entire life that doesn't actually happen, and we are just at the mercy of chemicals. So if you were to inject drugs or whatever, what do you think about the fact that we are just at the mercy of these substances, these chemicals? Well, it's like saying that, you know, the universe is made out of atoms, right? <laughs> that says everything and it says nothing. Huh. It says everything in the sense that, well, yeah, it's true. The visible universe is made out of atoms, right? However, it also says nothing because it says nothing about how these incredibly complex interactions take place to create layers and layers of complexity. Out of matter, you had galaxies and stars and planets and plants and people and cells and stuff like that. Mm. And so, yeah, in some sense, everything is made out of atoms. That's not so shocking, right? which means that we too are made out of atoms. But the way in which the atoms uh, combine to create the mind is incredible. Uh, for example, you know, in the old days, people used to think in dualism that there was a soul and a body. Recently, we think that the mind is like software. Software running on wetware. Wetware is the, the gray matter. And maybe, maybe that's uh, who we are. But now we have yet another opinion. We're going back to the medieval idea of the soul separated from the body, because if you have the connectome with all the neural pathways on a disc and the genome, all your genes on a disc, then in some sense you have now separated the soul from the body. And so maybe we're going back two, two, two three hundred years back to Descartes, yeah. thinking that the essence of our spirit and our soul can be separated from the material body. And by the way, in the last part of my book, in the last chapter, I soar into science fiction now. The book is not science fiction at all. Asimov once believed that we could send the mind into outer space. I think that's possible. If you take the connectome and put it on a laser beam, you can shoot the laser beam at the speed of light at the nearest stars. You can reach the moon in one second. And so in the future, we may explore the galaxy using a network of laser beams with no booster rockets, boosting ourselves to the speed of light, not having to worry about suspended animation or booster rockets or meteor or cosmic rays or black holes. 
explore the universe as pure consciousness. That's amazing. That's amazing. I want to end it there and leave <laughs> people with that thought. That was so fantastic. And again, your book, The Future of the Mind, The Scientific Quest to Understand, Enhance, and Empower the Mind, we will link to that on smartpeoplepodcast.com. We'll write up a little article. Where else can people go and learn about you, where you write, what you do? I mean, I know you're all over, so I just want to see where you'd like to drive our listeners. Uh, well, first of all, Facebook, uh, Michio Kaku is uh, the address at Facebook. We're up to 1.8 million fans oh. on Facebook. Wow. Uh, Twitter, we're up to 240,000 uh, fans on Twitter. So you can follow some of the activities on Twitter. Uh, my uh, website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. And, uh, you know, I have my own national radio science program, Science Fantastic, as well. All over the place. And I appreciate you being on the show. I know you're busy. You're doing your book tour. So thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. And thank you again. Okay, no problem. All right, have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys thoroughly enjoyed that interview with Dr. Kaku. Remember, you can find out more about him at his site, mkaku.org. You can find more about us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And I had a quick favor to ask. Whoever wrote the most recent iTunes review, I believe your name on there is angry-scammed. Please shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. I think you have a good idea listed in that review and i would love to talk to you about it yeah actually we, we've been talking about it for a while so appreciate it and to all the other people that have been sending emails we respond to i'd say 98 percent. sometimes they slip through the cracks right if you're spamming us it slips through the cracks That's otherwise true. it's getting it's getting addressed and we're doing a google hangout with a listener tomorrow i think Tomorrow being Saturday, oh, March right, yeah. 29th, yeah. in case this episode is released in the future. Yeah, which it will be. But just just saying, she, she had some great ideas. We're like, yeah, let's chat. We're trying to grow the show. I mean, that's really all it comes down to. Um, so if you have some ideas, if you know a local radio DJ, if you want to submit our shows to radios, I mean... We'll give you whatever you need. We're, yeah. let's, Public let's radio, that. college radio, any of that stuff. If you know anybody that works within those organizations or you listen to, to public radio a lot and would like to hear our show on there, let us know. Let us know the actual radio station. We can get some content over to them yeah. so they can check it out, see if they want to have us on. Smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com is where you can reach us. We appreciate you listening. Hope you enjoyed this awesome episode. God, my brain just gets going and it's so much fun. So much fun. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye.